0: it's my pleasure to introduce today's speaker. The life of George Washington has been told many times over the years since his death in 1799. So many times, in fact, that you would think there'd be nothing left to say about our most famous founding father. Well, today's speaker will challenge that perception. It's always exciting, I think, when someone finds a new way to tell a seemingly familiar story. In his latest book, Barnett Schechter looks at the life of George Washington from a very different angle. The maps that the Virginian drew and purchased from his teens until his death were always central to his work and to his life. They reveal Washington's early career as a surveyor, his dramatic exploits in the French and Indian War, his struggles throughout the American Revolution as he outmaneuvered the far more powerful British Army, his diplomacy as president, and his shaping of the new republic. Inspired by these remarkable maps, our speaker has created a unique portrait of our our first founding father. Barnett Schechter is an independent historian and the author of The Battle for New York, The City at the Heart of the American Revolution, The Devil's Own Work, The Civil War Draft Riots, and the Fight to Reconstruct America, and most recently, George Washington's America, a biography through his maps, which incidentally is available upstairs for purchase after the lecture. He served as an advisor for the New York Historical Society's exhibition Lincoln in New York. He's a contributing editor of the Encyclopedia of the American Revolution and Landmarks of the American Revolution and as a contributor to the Encyclopedia of New York City. He's a fellow of the New York Academy of History and in addition to lecturing and leading tours and military staff rides he has appeared on a variety of television documentaries. So please join me in giving a warm VHS welcome to Barnett Schechter, who will speak to us today about George Washington's America, a biography through his maps.
1: Thank you, Paul, for the warm welcome. and Thank you all for coming out today. It's, it's absolutely an honor uh, to be here at the Virginia Historical Society, uh, particularly to talk about George Washington As you can imagine, uh, of course, the map of Virginia uh, figures prominently in my book, and uh, I'll give you a a view of it here. This is the uh, Fry and Jefferson map from uh, 1753. Um, Let me begin, though, by uh, following up on what what Paul said about the the prevalence of of Washington biographies. There have probably been a thousand of them since 1799, Um, and historians have poured over mostly Washington's papers and his diaries, Um, really looking for the the real man behind the monuments and the myths, Um, looking for that glimpse of the the flesh and blood Washington. Um, But what I'd like to suggest to you today is that there's another important primary source, uh, a window on Washington's life, his personality, his passions, uh, and that is a collection of more than 90 maps and atlases that were found in his library at Mount Vernon upon his death. Uh, Now of course Washington was a man who was deeply connected to the land Uh, and throughout his life maps were central to his work. Uh, Think about it, at age 16 he was trained as a surveyor uh, and he he pursued that for a couple of years and then in uh, 1753 he started his military career uh, going out to the Ohio Valley, uh, drawing maps then um, and then retiring in 1758 after the, uh, his stint in the French and Indian War where he also used maps. He retired to Mount Vernon for the first time, uh, began drawing uh, maps of his, uh, his acres there which eventually amounted to some 8,000 uh, acres. Uh, and Then between the French and Indian War and the American Revolution uh, Washington spent a lot of his effort uh, acquiring more land. Uh, he had already started to acquire some acreage bounty for his military service um, in the West, and he pursued um, acquisition of even more land out there. Uh, by the time Washington got finished, he was a major landholder with some 65,000 acres. Uh, if you count up the 12,000 in Virginia, um, more than 30,000 along the Ohio Valley. He uh, later acquired land in New York State as well. Uh, so Washington was a major land speculator and always using maps uh, to guide him and to also to secure his title to all of this land. Uh, Then we see, of course, in the American Revolution, for eight years, Washington's using maps constantly, creating a geographer's department in the Continental Army to create more maps. Um, And then in the post-war period, uh, advising Congress on the creation of new states uh, in the West, and then in two terms of his presidency, uh, using maps constantly to try to fend off the, uh, the depredations of the the European powers, the Spanish, the British, uh, the French, their own meddling in American affairs, using maps to try to secure the borders of the new nation as it's on the verge of being torn apart. Um, And finally, I'll I'll end the talk with a look at um, Washington's return to Mount Vernon and his relationship to slavery, uh, which is fascinating to see his his evolution. I would say the maps do a couple of things for us. Now again what I'm going to be showing you today uh, what's in the book are a combination of maps that Washington collected uh, beautiful printed maps from London or from Paris uh, along with maps that he drew himself. uh, Some equally exquisite um, if less elaborate. And one of the things that the maps do of course is they place us at the scene of some of the most dramatic and harrowing moments in Washington's life. Battles uh, that he fought and we're really looking over his shoulder, uh, through his eyes at the same uh, maps that he was looking at. Uh, in the book I've uh, tried to find as many of the actual copies that belonged to Washington, and wherever I couldn't, I found maps uh, that were in his inventory at Mount Vernon and found other copies of them. So we're always essentially looking at the same image that he was looking at. Um, you know, the other, the other thing, too, is that I think through the maps we get a greater understanding of Washington's evolution uh, as a man, as a, a private citizen who grew and changed and expanded his worldview and became the visionary uh, founding father that he was. And so the maps, I think, can help us to flesh out the papers and diaries and to see Washington's um, broad vision as it evolves from the young man that we meet in Virginia in the 1740s, 50s, even 60s, to this uh, real leader for the whole nation uh, that we see in the the 80s and 90s. Um, And so we see Washington um, evolving and expanding his view of America's potential, as he called it, uh, as a rising empire in the new world. And I think the maps were were a key to that vision. Excuse me, one second. So here I'm going to start with the map of Virginia. And of course, one could almost tell Washington's whole life story uh, with this one map from from cradle to grave and with Yorktown in between. (laughs) Um, But I'm going to pick something else that I hope will be a little bit off the beaten path. And what I want to look at is something called the Northern Neck Proprietary. Um, Piece of land about the size of Massachusetts. If you can imagine, 5.2 million acres, um, and that's an underestimate, um, which was given to one family uh, by the King of England, uh, to the Fairfax family. And so what we're talking about here is a neck of land between the Potomac and Rappahannock. And the grant was made uh, in the 1600s, but by Washington's time, it was Lord Thomas Fairfax who was the proprietor. Now, originally, people interpreted the grant to go uh, the neck of land here between the rivers up to the fall lines of the Potomac uh, and the Rappahannock Rivers. Uh, But as one of Lord Thomas's critics said, he wanted not only the neck, but the body too. Uh, (laughs) And he he argued, he did a resurvey in 1736 and managed to get the grant interpreted as going all the way up to the headwaters of the Potomac uh, you see that it says the the, spring, uh, the head spring is here in the in the eastern Alleghenies. Uh and then an artificial line, if, uh, Lord Fairfax's boundary, coming all the way down. And I'll I'll show you a closer view, uh, so you can really get a sense of it. Here, up to the source here in the mountains, the spring head, then Lord Fairfax's Lord his boundary line, uh, and then all the way back to the Rapidan. Sorry, yeah, the rapidan, and to the rapidan here. Sorry, I'm I'm at an angle. Uh, The rapidan here, the line coming to the rapidan and reconnecting, and uh, and closing the loop here. Now, this piece of land, um, by the time Washington was 16 years old, really presented something of an obstacle as well as an opportunity for the young Washington. Um, On the one hand. Washington, uh, through his brother, half brother Lawrence, uh, would gain great social connections and jobs and promotion through uh, the Fairfax family through uh, Lawrence's marriage uh, to Anne Fairfax. And Washington would be uh, taken to um, to socialize with the Fairfax family. Here's a, another detail of the Fry and Jefferson map. Uh, you know, we can see here's uh, Fredericksburg, just to get you oriented. Washington growing up, mostly on the ferry farm here, um, but Mount Vernon, the future Mount Vernon, just says Washington at this point. Future Mount Vernon would be right here, and just across the little creek was Belvoir, the uh, the estate of um, the Fairfax family, and so Washington was very much part of that social circle um, when he was seventeen. Uh, he, had, he at an unprecedentedly young age, he became a county surveyor in Culpeper and it seems clear that all of this came uh, through the Fairfax family and, and those connections. Um, on the other hand what it also meant was that, just to go back to the full map for a minute, what it meant was that all of this land was essentially under the domain of the Fairfaxes and no matter how much of it Washington surveyed and earned money from Ultimately, if he wanted to become a, a front rank uh, gentleman, he was going to have to build his own real estate empire. And that would have to be beyond the mountains in the Ohio country, in the western frontier, because Fairfax would always dominate this. And like many second sons who, who didn't stand to inherit uh, the lion's share of their father's estates, Washington set his sights westward. And so the, the, the Fairfax proprietary. Um, really becomes this kind of great shaping force in young Washington's life. We, we, we like to say geography is destiny, um, and for Washington it certainly seemed that way. Um, that, that projecting of his ambitions beyond the mountains um, into, the, into the West would have a profound effect for the rest of Washington's life. Um, first of all, it would project him into his, his first uh, military exploits, starting in 1753 um, as the the French and Indian War was brewing. Um, And later, um, because of the land that Washington received as bounty, he had a stake in the West. And it would become his lifelong ambition to try to connect the headwaters of the Potomac River with the commerce of the Great Lakes and the, the Western frontier via portages and creeks uh, leading to Lake Erie and to the Ohio River. And it's really a project uh, to bring that trade to the Chesapeake and, and the Eastern Seaboard in Europe. That's a project that Washington would would die uh, pursuing <laughs> and putting money into it um, to the to the very end of his days. So this uh, the map of Virginia really kind of sets us on a, a fascinating course for Washington's young career and, and later career as well. Um, now I wanted to pick up um, in 1753. Now uh, Lawrence, of course, had had died of tuberculosis. Um, Washington um, assumed one of the military posts. His, his uh, Lawrence's post as adjutant of Virginia was divided into four, and Washington got one of the posts and jockeyed and lobbied and got the northern neck assignment that he wanted. Um, it's it's fascinating to when studying the papers and the maps, one of the revelations for me was just what a, a fiercely ambitious young man he was, and how he didn't sit and wait for things to come to him. Uh, he knew what he wanted, and he, he went after it. Um, and it, it, I think his that formal reserve that we see in Washington in his later years, which was so effective in projecting him as a, a disinterested leader uh, for the whole country it was, a, it was a great asset, um, but it, it also masks some of the uh, some of the raw ambition that we see in his younger years. Um, now, here's a case. This is a map that Washington drew in 1753. He had just become an um, adjutant for the Northern Neck and he volunteered with the winter coming on in October uh, to go out and deliver an ultimatum to the French commander at Fort Lebeuf, uh near the southern shore of Lake Erie. Now, he didn't speak a word of French. Uh, he didn't have a formal English education. Uh, But the governor looked at this strapping six-foot man uh, physically uh, clearly up for the job and a man who was volunteering for an incredibly difficult uh, expedition. And so Washington not only accomplished it, but he went beyond the call and not only submitted a sketch of the fort uh, and a journal, but on his own initiative created this map which it turns out by modern measurements is actually quite accurate. Uh, Now it's certainly it's been uh, kind of abstracted. The the elements have been stacked in a sort of vertical uh, configuration to get them all in. You've got the Potomac, the Alleghenies. Uh, here's today's Pittsburgh at the, the forks of the Ohio. Um, and here Washington made his way all the way up to the French forts, uh, to the French fort here, uh, Fort at Fort Presqu'ile up here. He, he went to Fort Leboeuf and then made his way all the way back in the deep snows, uh, to uh, bring this map and the journal and and the French commander's reply uh, back to to Williamsburg. And it was an incredible feat. Um, And the map shows you, I think, how Washington was uh, really looking at the world constantly through this lens of cartography and geography, that this was his way of thinking about the world, of understanding what he was doing. And also, I think he clearly saw that maps were knowledge and knowledge was power. Uh, And This was about power politics on the frontier, these empires colliding and that whoever had the best uh, detailed information about the terrain would would be at a serious advantage. It's also I think interesting that at this point, here's a a detail that just gives you some of the the nice um, drawing that Washington's done. You see in his diary he complains about the meandering creek It's cursing all the bends and how long it's taking uh, to get to the fort. Uh, But this is also really the moment um, that Washington begins his ascent to universal fame. Uh, This is when Washington brings back this map. It's put in the the package that's sent to London by the governor, along with his journal, Um, and this is what uh, really launches his uh, his fame both in America up and down the seaboard but also in Europe and the fact that he was able to accomplish this um, and it really b- was a warning to the British that uh, the French incursions were serious and in some ways really also launches the, helps to launch the French and Indian War. Now that was 1753, of course he went back to the frontier in 54 And he had his mishaps uh, with uh, the assassination of Jumonville, the defeat at Fort Necessity. Uh, Not all successes (laughs) in this early period. But uh, what we do see as a theme coming out is Washington's fearlessness in the face of bullets flying, and also that what he began to call divine providence that seemed to be protecting him uh, from those flying bullets. So the warrior is going through his, his training. And by 1755, um, Washington had signed on to General Braddock's staff. Um, that's an interesting story in itself, which involves another map. <laughs> um, again, remember I was saying how Washington was using a map to sort of um, gain favor with the governor and, and give him a leg up. Um, when he signs on for Braddock's mission to go out to, to take Fort, Le, um, Fort Duquesne at the Forks from, from the French, um, Washington encloses. He writes a letter to, to uh, Braddock's top aide and encloses a sketch map of the frontier. So again, it's his, it's his MO. <laughs> Maps are, are the way he did business. Um, and he says, you know, here's a rough sketch done without instruments, but I hope it will be acceptable to the general. And so, of course, he was given the job. He, now there was the whole problem of he had, he had resigned and said he would volunteer for the staff and take no pay. So again, we see Washington's sense of himself as a rising gentleman. Now, the Braddock campaign, um, you may remember, we'll talk about that in a minute, was a disaster. But that same year, 1755, uh, this great map, the Lewis Evans map of the middle British colonies comes out. And Washington talks about this map in his, um, in his letters. And um, it really covers some of the same area, I'll show you in a minute, that Washington was drawing. Again, many things to say about this, this landmark map that remained definitive for decades but let me just point out one feature which would have been valuable to Washington, namely the identification of the, definite, the different um, Native American nations or tribes and their areas of influence. Um, for example, the, the six nations of the Iroquois League, this powerful empire unto itself, um, the Mohawks, the Onedas, Onondagas, uh, Cayugas, Senecas, these are all indicated here. And in fact, their influence stretched uh, all the way into the, into the West, into the Ohio Valley. Um, and Washington would have to contend with these shifting alliances, this bewildering array of tribes and their loyalties to the French, trying to win them over. Um, and again, this is where I think Washington as a person emerges from the papers is when you see him uh, going out there to the frontier and, and trying to get to the Fort saying, you know, the Indians are abandoning me, the French are luring them away with liquor and guns and gifts. Um, he said, it was the most anxious moment in my life. Um, so we really get a view of Washington, I think, as a person um, through, these, through these source materials. And we see what a complex job he had to do and how much he really accomplished as a, a raw 21-year-old um, out on the frontier. Now here you can see the same view I showed you in Washington's map uh, with with the Forks of the Ohio, today's Pittsburgh right here, uh, and the, the, for, the French Fort up here. Now, um, I mentioned 1755 and the, the Braddock Campaign, um, one of the most trying episodes in Washington's life. I'm going to show you a map here. This is the, uh, the William Skull map of Pennsylvania. This dates from 1770, so it's a retrospective look, but this is a map that belonged to Washington, um, and it's got some great detail. Uh, For that particular episode, so I'm going to be focusing on this lower left corner of the map. And as you may remember, uh, Braddock's mission was the largest expeditionary force the British had sent in North America at that time—2,500 troops, a huge column that was working its way, uh, lumbering its way through the through the wilderness, trying to cut its own road. Uh, Washington encouraged Braddock to leave half of the column back at at what became Dunbar's camp here, um, and then to proceed more swiftly along this route up to Fort Duquesne and later Fort Pitt. Uh, There's some interesting details that emerge when you look at the map that are not in most secondary accounts. For example, they ran into this obstacle here. They thought they might be ambushed in this defile between the hills. So they actually forded the river not once but twice, here and then here, to reach the scene of the battle, General Braddock's field here with the crossed swords. Now, that really just gives us, I think, enough of a a mental picture to really put us at the scene. Washington had been sick with dysentery for about eight days. He was dragged in the back of a wagon. He insisted on coming to the battlefield. And it's a good thing he was there, (laughs) as we'll see in a moment. Um, this 1,500 men collided with a French and Indian column of more than 900 uh, right about here uh, and chaos broke out. The Indians surrounded the British column and just cut it to pieces from their hiding places in the woods. Uh, Washington had, uh, Braddock had been cut down Uh, all the other aides had been cut down. Washington had bullets flying through his hat through his coat. Got back up on the horse still feverish from the dysentery and managed to try to rally the troops, um, got Braddock onto an ammunition cart and got him off the battlefield, got him across that second ford in the river to put some water between them and the enemy. And it was here, as night was falling, that Braddock told Washington, you have to go back. This is about 40 miles in the dead of night. Go back to Dunbar's camp and get help. Uh, Washington, barely able to sit in the saddle, uh, describes the journey in his diary like something out of Dante's Inferno. Uh, you know, the pitch darkness, the guides groping for the path on the ground with their hands, uh, the groans of the dying and the wounded uh, coming out of the trees from both sides. And 40 miles uh, in the dead of night, he made it back uh, and got Dunbar. But the, the troops back here were too panicked by the news of the defeat. Uh, to go and help. So they, they got Braddock back, they buried him and then fled for Philadelphia to winter quarters in July. <laughs> Terrible disaster. Uh, but What's amazing, yeah, I mean it was, it was hu- huge humiliation. What's fascinating though is that Washington, uh, as with his other defeats, because of his personal bravery, his cool, his composure, uh, he emerges from the disaster uh, with his reputation not only intact but enhanced um, and his career goes on. And so I think that's a, a great kind of companion to the, um, to the diary. Now, just to quickly talk about Washington's uh, French and Indian War career, uh, as I, mentioned, I think I may have mentioned, by 1758, uh, he had retired to Mount Vernon and he spent that interwar period before the revolution uh, building up quite a portfolio of land uh, in, the, in the West. In fact, uh, in a private letter, he, as he was getting ready to head off to take charge of the Continental Army, uh, he, he mentioned that if, if things went wrong and the British were ready to, to hang him up from a noose, he would, he would seek shelter in the, the vast wilderness of the West. Uh, so it was always at the back of his mind. But by 1774, 75, we see Washington um, frustrated. Uh, on a personal level, with being stuck in the British mercantilist system. He's a now a su- substantial estate owner, a plantation owner. He's going into debt because his tobacco prices are sliding at market in, in London. Uh, he's going into more and more debt with his British agents um, and buying more and more of the sort of trappings that he needs for his, his life as a Virginia gentleman. Um, and he, on a personal level, he's experiencing what the colonies as a whole were experiencing that sense of dependency and exploitation um, in the the mercantilist system. Now, another important irritant was the issue of land in the West. Uh, The king had decreed, remember, in in 1763, the proclamation line forbid um, settlement west of the Appalachians. So all those veterans from the French and Indian War weren't going to get their land grants. So Washington started working on his own behalf and on behalf of fellow veterans, uh, lobbying to get that land. And of course, Lord Dunmore, the last royal governor of Virginia, uh, tried to take that land away by invalidating those claims on a technicality right on the eve of the revolution, trying to pry Washington and others away from the continental movement, clearly without success. Washington wrote an angry letter and said, I'm headed off to Philadelphia as a delegate to the Continental Congress. And, of course, by 1775, he was on his way um, the end of June to uh, take charge of the, uh, the Continental Army at, uh, at Cambridge. Uh, this is a, another wonderful map. This is the seat of war in New England. And here we see not only a great map, but also a pictorial kind of dramatization of the opening weeks of the American Revolution. Uh, these Black lines; these black dots that you see are all the citizen soldiers converging on Cambridge, um, and to besiege the British after uh, the battle, uh, the battles at Lexington and Concord, um, and Washington, of course, arrives on July 2nd, uh, a couple weeks after um, the uh, the Battle of Bunker Hill on on June 17th, which you see in detail here. Um, of course, my favorite detail from this map is that left-hand side, the March of General Washington. Um, and you could see the, the cannon and the horses, the New York grenadiers, the Virginian horse, uh, the little tents in the encampment. It's just a charming map. Um, and I think you know, a great encapsulation of those dramatic days. Now, during the siege, Washington would have had this map, the, the Debar map of um, Boston Harbor from 1775. And You know, one of the great questions is how did he get hold of these British military maps uh, during the siege of Boston? And you know, you've got a a key here, which tells you where every gun battery is in the British-occupied city. (laughs) Washington even talks about them in his letters. Um, You can—I'll give you a detailed view here. You can see there's a a battery of eight 24-pounders, to be precise, (laughs) on Cops Hill here uh, that had harassed our men at at the Battle of Bunker Hill. Uh, so Washington it turns out had a French connection uh, there were <laughs> French map dealers had an uninterrupted trade in maps with their British counterparts throughout the American Revolution uh, and those maps were coming in and going directly to, to American commanders and we know we know the name of a particular uh, French dealer who bought four of this map uh, when it came out in August of 75. Uh, a couple of other things you know reading Washington's papers with the maps in hand, I think, gives you a different view. You look for different things. Um, I always had thought of the siege of Boston as this very static um, sort of affair. I think my, my battery may be running low here. Um, but if you, if you look at the, um, the, Charles, the, the, neck, the Charlestown neck and the, um, the neck of the peninsula at Roxbury, you can see that these were the choke points where the Americans held the British uh, in at Boston. But it wasn't limited to that. Washington had a fleet of whaleboats that he sent on um, sabotage missions all over the harbor. They burned the lighthouse uh, to try to disorient the British shipping. They uh, stole sheep and burned hay on the islands to starve the British out of the city. Um, and of course, the whaleboats could escape onto the shoal, uh, the, the shallow areas, the shoals. Um, where the deep-drafted British ships couldn't go. So there was a great kind of game of cat and mouse going on across this whole theater. Um, at the same time, Washington was also sending his fledgling navy of privateers up to, to Canada, to the mouth of the St. Lawrence. He had maps of that area uh, to interdite British supplies and troops going to, either to Quebec or down to Halifax and then to Boston. Uh, he was sending ships down to, uh, to the Bahamas to try to get gunpowder from there. So there's a whole canvas that Washington was working on even though uh, the bottleneck was really right, the the focus was right here at the the city limits. And of course, another favorite, this is Washington's own sketch map of the Boston siege, uh, which he drew for his brother and slipped into a letter uh, when he first arrived. And um, it's very quickly done, but gets the the basic points in. Uh, Just in case you weren't sure, there's water. <laughs> water, and uh, water, and the grid of Boston, the grid of Cambridge, here's the, the back bay here, and Dorchester Heights, the spot where the American guns would be placed uh, to, um, to drive the British out of, this, of the city at the end of the siege. Uh, here you have Charlestown Neck. And so, again, Washington sort of working out his thoughts about tactics um, through a map and talking about how the British were at the center of of this semicircle uh, and how the Americans had to uh, really cover all the points on that semicircle. Quite a challenge to keep the British uh, from penetrating. Now another important episode during the Boston siege was the American invasion of Canada in uh, in 75-76. Washington actually launched the second prong of that invasion himself by sending Benedict Arnold from Cambridge with a thousand men up through the main wilderness to to capture Quebec. And this is a map from the French and Indian War, 1759, which shows part of Washington's collection during the Revolution, showing that this was still the most accurate map that he had uh, of the Canadian theater. So it's great to be able to see where Washington was focused, even if he didn't set foot there, but we can, we can follow him through the maps. And he, of course, was following Arnold's progress with great anxiety, which comes through again in these very personal letters, um, great admiration for Arnold. It's, it's a kind of ironic uh, episode where he's just lavishing all this praise on, on Arnold for his great uh, perseverance. But um, what you're seeing here is the British in 1759 expelling the French from, from uh, Canada by capturing uh, Quebec right here but it's, it's equally appropriate for following Arnold's progress. He came along the Echema River to Pointe-le-Vie and then under the nose of, of British ships snuck his men to the landing place here and up to the heights of Abraham to attack the city. I have a little bit cl- closer view. You can even see the path going up, the, up to the heights here uh, where the, the same path the British had followed. Now, unfortunately for the Americans, unlike the French, the British didn't sally forth and to do battle. They stayed holed up like a hedgehog in the city, uh, and the American invasion essentially collapsed um, and fell back down toward, toward Ticonderoga. Um, now, on the face of it, the, the invasion was a disaster, uh, loss of probably 5,000 men. But in fact, it accomplished a very significant goal, which was to keep the British on the defensive in Canada for essentially an entire year. Because by the time they were ready uh, to come down uh, to Lake Champlain and and penetrate northern New York, the winter was setting in. So it had delayed them and really would set the stage for the uh, the surrender at Saratoga in 77. And so that's the the corridor that we're looking at here along the Hudson River. This is a, a British engineer's map of um, the whole province of New York and it's clear from the map why the Hudson River was the backbone of British grand strategy. Their idea was to seize New York City and then march up to Albany, have another army march down from Canada and they would meet halfway and control the river, quarantine, isolate New England from the rest of the colonies and crush the, the American rebellion. And so that, that was delayed for a year by the Canadian invasion. Now, here you can see why Washington would have loved this map by a military engineer. The topography is emphasized, the elevations. And in fact, Washington used the, the landscape here to his advantage really for the next seven years. Um, once the British had captured New York City, um, once they had captured New York City, what Washington was was pushed out. But what he did was to establish a series of outposts in, in Danbury, Connecticut, in the Hudson Highlands here, at uh, West Point and, and New Windsor, um, and he camped out at, at Morristown, which would have been right here um, in the Watchung Mountains in central New Jersey. So you can see how he used these natural fortifications to protect his army and also to keep psychological and military pressure on the British who had decided to settle down comfortably in New York City for a seven year occupation. Uh, and during the rest of the war you, you'll see how the British really did that at their peril because it, at, York, at Saratoga and Yorktown where they should have been on the move to help their generals in the field they were parked in New York City along with their ships. Uh, Now, now during that Saratoga campaign, as as Burgoyne was coming down from Canada, Washington was trying to defend Philadelphia. That same uh, William Skull map of 1770 um, gives us some some of the detail on the battles of Brandywine, uh, Germantown, and of course the winter uh, at Valley Forge. So here's uh, Brandywine Creek down here. Uh, Germantown in here, Philadelphia, uh, and Valley Forge um, right, right in the middle here. Now another theater of, of the American Revolution where Washington didn't actually go during the war was the American South. Um, you know, he, was, he didn't get to visit Mount Vernon uh, for about seven years. Uh, but between the letters that he wrote to Nathaniel Green, for example, and this uh, wonderful map, the Henri Mouzon map of the the Carolinas from 1757, still the definitive map during the Revolution, um, we can we can actually follow those letters between Washington and Green and, and understand what they're talking about, strategizing about where to move the army, uh, how to live off the land, and of course, you the, that's a great map because it. It gives you a real clear sense of the tidewater areas as distinct from the Piedmont, uh, as distinct from the mountainous areas up here in the Appalachians around the, this cartouche here. and You can really get a sense of the, um, the Whig frontiersmen coming out of the mountains uh, to attack the, the British column at Kings Mountain uh, or you know, Green on the run um, and then the, the engagement at Guilford Gil- Courthouse up, up in this area. Um, so you can really follow all those great battles in the in the war in the South through this map, and um, I'll just give you one, you know, close up that I, th- I think really is revealing about Washington. Uh, this this inset from the lower right, um, this the the bar and harbor at Char- Charleston, South Carolina. Um, you can read Washington's letters uh, during both British attempts to capture the city, the first in June of 76 when they were repulsed. Uh, and you can read the glee jumping off the page as Washington uh, writes, you know, forwards the news to someone about the British losses and how the, the British ships were uh, you know, grounded on this. They came in here through the channel and, and ran aground on the shoal and the, the American fort bombarded them and set them ablaze as they were stuck at the mouth of the harbor. Um, on the other hand, in 17, after May of 1780 with the fall of the city uh, to the British, the worst American loss of the war, you see Washington's sense of foreboding as the British come into the harbor um, and also launch an overland campaign to cut off the, the neck of the peninsula and to read his letters and that sense of dread as he sees the, the British plan succeeding um, it's, it's quite revealing and also I think very important is Washington's attitude after the city falls, and his ability to convey a sense of um, an indomitable courage and to, to tell his, his um, subordinates, "We've lost this, but if we turn it to our advantage, if we learn from this mistake, uh, you know, we will come out stronger in the end." And I think that's really a hallmark of Washington's leadership, is that ability to, to try to find some lesson in adversity and to inspire others to carry on. Now, by 1783, uh, with the war winding down, uh, Washington is waiting up at uh, New Windsor on the Hudson for definitive news of the peace treaty. And he decides, instead of just waiting and and chafing at the bit, to go on a trip and to to spend three weeks exploring the frontiers in New York that he hasn't seen yet. And he goes up uh, to Lake Champlain uh, and along the Mohawk toward uh, Lake Ontario. And he comes back and he writes a tremendously important letter to a French colleague, Marquis de Chastelux. And he says, You know, on this trip, I had a kind of revelation. And I, looking at maps, reading reports, and then seeing the terrain with my own eyes, what I realized is that what's going to save our newly independent nation are the, the great inland waterways, those rivers that we've been blessed with uh, that are going to tie the nation together. If we can develop commerce uh, and interdependence, that's going to save us from being torn apart by the European powers. That's going to give the the new immigrants who are rushing out to the Mississippi something in common uh, with the people in the cities on the East Coast. And Here you can see the Ohio River, uh, you can see the Mohawk, and here's a detail where you can see also the Cumberland and the Tennessee rivers and you can get a sense of how those were the commercial arteries that Washington wanted to develop and so Washington's idea of developing the Potomac as the great east-west artery I think at this point becomes a broader vision of a national interest and here he becomes the indispensable leader for the nation as a whole. Now the dangers of the European powers were quite clear on the northern border, the new line of the treaty went through the lakes, putting seven British forts in American territory. Despite the treaty, they refused until 1796 to, to vacate those forts. And they were arming the native tribes to attack American settlers. Um, and in the southwest, uh, we had the Spanish now in New Orleans and Louisiana arming. The Cherokees, the Chickasaws, the Choctaws, the Creeks, um, and fomenting uh, warfare between them and the, the Georgia settlers who were moving west. So, in the in the North and the South, Washington is using these maps to conduct high-level diplomacy and essentially to keep the nation, out, the young nation, out of war with Britain and Spain. But in the Northwest, ultimately he decides to go to war with the Indian nations and he launches three uh, military campaigns here during his presidency. Now, Just to show you how involved he was in the details on the maps, he tells his commanders this is the spot right here at this kind of crossroads of the rivers, this point where there's a village uh, the Miami village which is connecting essentially the Great Lakes via the Uh, the Maumee River, uh, the Wabash to the Ohio to the Mississippi, you're essentially connecting the Gulf of Mexico with Canada via this route and so he says that is where we need to attack and of course we see this is the close-up where we see the Miami uh, village right here and of course the first two campaigns were disasters the third finally Succeeded under Anthony Wayne in 1794. This is an uh, Abraham Bradley map. One of the, this is uh, one of the first postal maps of the U.S. showing all the postal routes. Uh, but it also, 1796, uh, gives us a retrospective look at the Wayne, Wayne's campaign. Here you see Cincinnati. Cincinnati is a little settlement next to the fort. Uh, and there's a series of forts that are built to protect the army as it moves forward today's Fort Wayne, Indiana, uh, and the defeat of the Indians at fallen timbers, clinching American control of the old Northwest. So I've talked much too long, but I want to conclude with one slide um, when Washington, much to his relief, becomes Farmer Washington again uh, and looks forward to going back to Mount Vernon. Now this is a map, uh, his own survey of his acres at at Mount Vernon. doubly fascinating about it is that it's drawn in 1793 while he was still in office and was secretly contemplating freeing the hundreds of slaves at Mount Vernon. Uh, Interesting to to know what might have happened if he had done it while he was in office, but there were too many constraints on him politically, financially in terms of his family's willingness to do it. Um, and He ultimately freed them in his will, but the idea was to free the slaves and then have to rent out the component farms, to keep the manor house farm for himself, but to rent these farms out to uh, capable agriculturalists who could then hire the freed slaves as free laborers um, and, and give them you know, gainful employment after, after emancipation. And so it's a tremendously interesting map that I think uh, gives us that, a sense of the inner transformations that Washington was going through. I talked about his broader political vision for the country, inspired by his sense of geography. But at the same time, he was going through a kind of moral transformation of coming to detest slavery, whereas he had been a, a big practitioner of it earlier in his life. And so I, I'm going to leave it on that note with Washington entering his golden years of retirement with uh, a greater sense of the country's potential and for the potential for human freedom and equality. Thank you. I would be happy to take questions and uh, just please speak into the microphone. Very interesting. In all these maps, uh, you have a, a arrow for north, and the two-part question: What kind of projection were were they using then? Was it Mercator, or uh, how did they uh, handle the convergence of the uh, uh, latitudes? Yeah. Um- that is probably a better question for a surveyor than for me, but I, uh, I, I do note on the maps that there's often a notation of, of correction of a certain number of degrees. Um, so I think there, there were you know, adjustments that were written on the map to compensate, but I, I, I'm not really able to, to answer it on that level, technical level. unless someone else would like to. (laughs) We have an expert in the audience. Uh, You spoke of Washington's interest in linking the the rivers and and the waterways and and building the nation around that. What was his view, could you tell us a little bit about his view of canals and how that would play in and how they were to be built and financed and so on? Yeah, Washington was uh, obviously a great promoter of canals. particularly on the Potomac. Um, but uh, you know, again, what I think is interesting in this post-war period uh, is how he starts to become a promoter of you know, a canal in Pennsylvania, a canal in South Carolina. Um, wherever there are projects being started, he's writing letters of support. He's finding engineers. Uh, you know, we can lend you an engineer if you need help. Uh, so there's that sense of what he called promoting the arts of peace. Uh, the clearing of rivers, building bridges, building canals, um, and uh, you know, I think that, that canals were a big part of his vision for uh, for the new nation. Of course, in the case of the Potomac, um, you know, he said, "We've got our work to do to to beat the, the uh, those darn Yorkers," who <laughs> who ended up, of course, building the Erie Canal by 1825. Uh, but really, the the mountain obstacles really proved to be too great. Um, in you know to really connect the Potomac and make it uh, a viable artery in that way. Yeah. I was thinking along with the canal idea that really one was we got here in Richmond, and his idea was to take it to the Mississippi River, but it was never really completed. Okay. Yeah. I think there was it was a James and the James River. Yeah. So James right and canal exactly right. Sort of a southern route <laughs> to complement the Potomac. <laughs> Could everybody hear that about the James and Kanawha project? Okay. Start the Swamp Canal. Right, the Dismal Swamp Company. Washington was an investor in that. Uh, so clearly, very much. And, and as I said, he was you know, constantly investing in these things, even to the very end of his life, putting more money into the Potomac project as well, buying, buying stock and so on. I, th- I think there's another question behind you. <laughs> I was looking behind me. You were speaking of how much property he owned uh, during his young lifetime. How much did he still own of that Western part other than Mount Vernon and the farms right there, How m- at death time when he died yeah <coughs> yeah, and I think you know what really happened was that Washington thought he would make a uh, you know a princely sum from from investing in some of these western lands, and in the end, what happened was he sold a modest amount of it and it got him through his retirement, uh, but it, he never really sold big. Uh, you know the majority of it and so when he died having outlived all of his younger his, all his siblings were younger but he outlived all of them um, he ended up dividing all that property between some 23 different heirs uh, who were his, his nieces and nephews so I, th- I think there was still quite a bit to go around at that point
0: you mentioned that these does this work? Uh, you mentioned that these maps library had his death.
1: Yeah. Where are those maps tonight? and who has yeah. the uh, So the majority of the maps that I worked with uh, are at Yale University Sterling Library. Uh, the, the inspiration for the book was an atlas that they have. Uh, it's, about f- it's 43 map sheets, very large sheets, that, are, that were bound together at some point, perhaps after his death. Um, and so that's an atlas that has maps from Canada all the way down the eastern seaboard all the way to, to Louisiana. And so that was the core of the book. Um, but then, really, to complete the story of his life, I, I wanted to also use maps um, that he had drawn. So, for example, this, this map, uh, his own survey of Mount Vernon, that's now held at the Huntington Library in Santa Barbara, California. Um, and for maps where I couldn't find his own copy, for example, I called Mount Vernon and said, you know, are there any maps left? And they said, pretty much everything is, has been dispersed. Um, you know, some of it's ended, a lot of his, his uh, uh, library ended up at the Boston Athenaeum. Um, and uh, let's see, I'm trying to think of some other. You know, those How
0: did the maps get to Yale?
1: Okay, so the, the particular maps that I was using at Yale, those uh, were handed down through three generations of nephews uh, and then ended up at auction. Uh, they were auctioned by uh, a nephew, Lawrence Washington, in 1876 at the Philadelphia Centennial Exposition. Uh, there was an auction um, and they were bought by a Connecticut family, and then uh, almost 100 years later, in 1970, they were bought uh, by the Yale Map Collection. So, we, for th- for the majority of those maps, we know exactly whose hands they were in, right from his death. So, it made a great uh, kind of building block for the book. And then, um, you know, where there were maps, for example, some of those later maps of the Midwest, um, those are from the Library of Congress. I don't know that those are, nobody knows, but we don't know that those were Washington's own copies, but we know from the inventory of his library that was made <laughs> upon his death that he owned a copy of you know, the Bradley map, the postal map, or so we know that Washington owned that image, if not that particular copy. So that was the premise for the book.
0: One final question. Um, yeah. Having done all this research for this particular book, did anything strike you in here that altered your perceptions or what you had written for the Battle of New York?
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, yeah, in, in the Battle for New York, I wrote about uh, the military campaign in 1776, the British capture of the city. Um, and one, you know, one fascinating thing that um, I found this time around was that instead of uh, waiting for the British to arrive in full strength, uh, Washington wanted to attack them on Staten Island uh, while they only had about 10,000 troops earlier in, the, in July in the, in the summer. Um, and so I think that you know the conventional view of of the battle in New York is always, you know, the Americans sort of sat back and then they were driven off the field. Uh, Washington. And I, I found this to be very characteristic of Washington. Um, he proposed uh, similar attacks at Boston. You know, we think of Boston again as this sort of waiting game, but Washington wanted to launch an attack on the city. Um, was voted down by his generals <laughs> uh, twice. Um, and essentially, the same thing happened in New York. He, there was this elaborate plan. There's a there's a map that's mentioned. It's now lost, but it's described. Uh, they were going to attack the island at all these different points. And he got voted down. It was too risky. Um, but that gave me a kind of fascinating what if, you know, like what if the British uh, effort at New York had been disrupted early on while there was still a chance? Um, it's, it was very tantalizing. <laughs> um, but in a, in a broader sense, it gave me a couple more data points for this image of Washington as a real warrior, um, you know, not just the Gilbert Stewart man of reserve, but this true warrior who wanted to strike first at the enemy and and always take the initiative. So it's a it's a another side of his, his persona. Thank you very, very much.